This is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. It'll be two years in April, which feels crazy to me. It feels both longer than that and like it just happened. My dad was 67 years old. He died of congestive heart failure, which was from complications from alcoholism. Up until his death, he was a columnist for the newspaper in Phoenix for the Arizona Republic. What was his name? His name was Clay Thompson. And there were two newspapers. There was a morning paper called the Arizona Republic and an evening paper up until I was about 10 or 11. And then it all got absorbed. He worked for the evening paper, which was the Phoenix Gazette. And he started as a reporter and then kind of throughout most of his life just went from desk to desk. He was, you know, the city editor. He was the managing editor. He was playing all these different roles in the newsroom. And then when I was in high school, he got a column. And that was in 2000, 2001. The editors of the newspaper really wanted to reach this thriving community of people who were coming for screaming deals on McMansions before the bubble burst, (laughs) the real estate bubble in Phoenix. And so you had all these people who were coming from, even from LA, like relocating from California and neighboring states who were curious about Arizona. And so his column started out as, it was called Valley 101 because Phoenix is called the Valley of the Sun. It's not really called that, but people pretend like it's called the Valley of the Sun. And New Mexico is. The land of enchantment. Um, I mean, it's like shore. Yeah. (laughs) City city (laughs) mottos are always like dot, 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 sure, question mark. I guess, Valley of the Sun. But yeah, it was called Valley 101, and and it was a hit out of the gates. And he had a very devoted fan base up until he died. Yeah. And they still run his column once a week, too, which is pretty... It was a daily column, and they still run it on Mondays, which is pretty crazy to me. (laughs) And I think he would be really secretly pleased if he knew that... Do you read it faithfully? No, I don't. It's too... It's too weird. My sister reads it, and she'll tell me from time to time about reading it. I think deep down inside, he was really pleased with getting this column and having such a devoted fan base, even though he often would roll his eyes about them. Or He had this act that he put on in his column where he was really grouchy, and people would write in, and he would just say things like, the response would be like, gee, lady, comma, I don't know, period. Next question. <laughs> Just mean. But people loved it. And I think that he loved that he was loved. His coworker, um, who took over his column space for him, and she now writes in it, told me that when he was in and out of the hospital in the last few years of his life and that when he would have and he would be hospitalized for these long bouts of time that when he'd be in the hospital that he'd continue to write the column and file it from the hospital and that she would come in and sit and he would dictate the column to her and towards the end of the column you know the newspaper kept shrinking in size they kept cutting sections down so at the time of his death it was 300 words And she was like, it was really scary. Like, he knew he would talk and talk and talk, and then he'd say, how many words is that? 
And then she'd say, you know, 252. And then he'd talk a few more. And how many words is that? 300. You know, so it was like he had this sort of preternatural ability to like, I think that that was like the true. And I don't think he ever felt like the man, like awesome. But I think that he was very proud of the fact that he came up in the true newspaper man era and still kind of had that ability to write it tight, you know, keep things short. Would you say that he, his voice was fading? Like, uh, just for narrative structure? Like, he realized, I mean, we remember the, the days of 2,000-word columns. Mm-hmm. And by 2016 or 2010, it was just shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. We we know what that's like for a writer. I think he was just happy that that he still had a job. I mean, even when I was, you know, in the early mid '90s, I was I was aware of the fact that newspapers were starting to suffer and that media was in decline. Just because I was, you know, a little kid in the house with him, and he would come home and talk about layoffs and being outraged that certain people had been let go or replaced with other people. And he was unhappy. And this column was kind of, it came, I think, at the very perfect time for him. It sort of regenerized him. Did he write about you at all? (laughs) Yes, he did. Um, It was difficult for my sister and I. He did write about us. He wrote about us a lot when he was, when he first got the column, which... You know, at that point, my parents had been divorced for a couple years, and he was not living with us. And, you know, my sister and I were really angry with him. He had a lot of issues, including, you know, untreated alcoholism, and he was having an affair. And he he ended the marriage so that he could be with the woman he was having an affair with. And so... He was sort of persona non grata in our house at the time because we were, my sister and I were, were teenagers, but, you know, sure enough, we would appear in his column as he referred to us as his sweet patooties, which was horrifying. You know, you're like 17 and you're like, I'm listening to Bikini Kill in my room and like, fuck you. Like, he took a lot of creative liberties around the sort of state of our relationship to make it sound like he was closer to us at that time than he was, and we were never estranged from him. We never stopped talking to him, even though we threatened it a lot. Before we knew anything about alcoholism, we'd give him ultimatums, like, don't, you know, we're never going to talk to you again. But we finally, I think my, like, freshman year in college, he finally stopped doing it because we were just like, please, this is too painful for us to to read these sugar-coated interpretations of what was happening but as an adult now I look at that and I'm like that he just I think he needed that to happen he wanted he wanted to believe that he had that dynamic with us and I think it was it felt better for him to portray the dynamic that way did you did he introduce you to the woman he left your mother for (laughs) (laughs) um the eternal question no there was one conversation that I look back on and a lot of regret when I was 16 where I basically baited him into suggesting that we all do something sometime and then told my mother when, when I got home and she went crazy. It was the only time I ever heard my mother or saw my mother really go into an angry meltdown with him where she called him and said, how dare you ask her that question? And so it was very... 
this woman, this woman, quote unquote, like, it wasn't just like, oh, people have affairs. My parents were married for almost 30 years. They, they gave it their best. Um, and they had, they had issues as all couples do. And I think that he, it was just such a, she was just such a loaded person for us that I think my mom just couldn't handle that. And I, and I set him up, you know, it was like, so how what, do you guys go on dates or kind of acting like I wasn't bothered by it and then you know turned on a dime and got home and was like you're never you'll never believe it he said this to me yeah. um sort of sold him out so did it end between them uh-huh that affair? yeah she broke up with him they went to Italy together when I was a junior in high school and he came home with a leather jacket. There are two, there's two fashion moments for my dad where I was like, oh my God, you're really doing this. One was Christmas morning. He, it was the first Christmas that he was not in the house and he, my dad loved Christmas and was extremely difficult. And he, he rang our doorbell at the front door. It was just like everything about it was like, my father's ringing the front doorbell to come into the house to for Christmas morning. And I remember opening the door and he was wearing a FUBU t-shirt, <laughs> which for listeners at home is a forest bias, which is a reference to forest bias being a, an apparel brand for African-Americans made by African-American designers intended for an African-American consumer. Um, so he was wearing a FUBU shirt that I was like... Where did you get that? Got it. He got it at Ross, where he did all of his shopping, just like Bernie Sanders. So he was sick for a couple of years. You have some choice stories about the last years of his life. He was rather ill. Was he, was he still <laughs> going to the office? You mm. would go home for Christmas, or you would try to have boundaries, but you would go home sometimes, right? There was one Christmas. We were going to go over to his house, but my mother warned us ahead of time this was in 2011, that my father's house was a little messy the last time that she had been there. And it was, it was shocking when we walked in. It, his mother had just died a few months prior to that, but it was really, it was more than a little messy. It was really, really dirty. My sister always said it was as if he just opened the windows and the doors and was like, let the elements take me. Mm. You know, he was really, really depressed. Um, he did not he did, you know, and that's kind of when, that's when we knew that things were really bad. There's TV dinners on the floor. There's cat and dog shit everywhere. Not cat shit, dog shit. Piles of junk and mail and like hoarders level of just like what is happening. And so my sister and I, you know, pre my personal recovery and therapy, we're like, we're going to clean your whole house. We went in with gloves and buckets and it was very much a thing and then we put him in a detox center and that was I think we thought maybe something would stick after that um just because he seemed so he seemed so happy afterwards and there's this thing with with addiction called the pink cloud and drinking where once you take away the substance from someone that they they feel really good at first and so he was sort of in this pink cloud that Christmas where it was like he had a whole new lease on life he was gonna start going to AA meetings and blah 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 and he just you know he was drinking like a week later so you know and and progressively since then you know a few years later it was like we go home for Christmas and we <laughs> then he after that he he hired two women who 
basically helped him until he died, who were both cleaned his house and also drove him to doctor's appointments and basically took care of him, which was painful to watch because there are a lot of times that I felt guilty as his own daughter that I wasn't there to do those things. I think the last final Christmas that we had together, I found a bottle of Kahlua under his sink. And for a split second, I thought that I would go yell at him and do this whole self-righteous, like, I can't believe you speech, which I did frequently to him and I feel badly about. But I, I didn't say anything in the end. And I sometimes think he basically, towards the end of his life, was living on, like, Ensure. He loved Ensure. And Red Vine, Sweet Tooth, um, I think that taste did get to him, especially getting dialysis and it would kind of mess with his blood sugar levels. But in, sometimes I'm like, I think he was putting Kahlua in the Ensure. Yeah. <laughs> and that that just makes me laugh. And I, I struggle with it a lot with the anger. And But it's like he, he didn't want to stop drinking. He wanted to go out drinking Ensure and Kahlua. He's, yeah. If he's listening to this right now somewhere, he's like, God damn it, I wasn't doing that. Someone gave it to me as a gift. Don't tell people I was drinking in Shore and Kahlua. <laughs> Nothing worse could happen than that. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. That's the worst thing that happened out of all of this. But, but yeah, it was... It was painful to watch him break down over the years, and and yet his mind was still, you know, it's what you call high-functioning alcoholism. I mean, he still was able to work from home. He sat in his bathrobe. He had two friends from the newspaper who he would let come into his house, who one who was, you know, a, a super close friend of his, and up until the end of his life, and then another reporter who he had sort of mentored he would let them come over and, and see the house um, and see him in his various states of decline. But that was it. His world was very small towards the end of his life. He was pretty isolated. So what happened at the end? Where were you in your life? I was 35. I had just started, I guess I had been there for like a year. I was working at Condé Nast which my father was extremely impressed by and proud of. And that Christmas, so he died in April, so I went home at Christmas, and I had just had a meeting at Condé Nast that required me to present something to Anna Wintour. And he was, I believe the only, but when she, when I wasn't disassociating <laughs> in the meeting <laughs> based on comments that she was saying about our presentation to her, um, the only thing that she said to, to us in the meeting was, Please close the blinds. <laughs> so my dad loved stories like that and was like, oh, you got to tell so-and-so. And, you know, he, he, loved, he loved that I had this life in New York. And he'd always say to me, like, how's life in the world's most exciting city? That was his line that he would say to me. We had these kind of rote calls, but he always said that. And, yeah, he was in decline. He... He had many health scares. He was on borrowed time, and he had many health scares. And put himself in the hospital. He'd go on a bender. <laughs> He'd do two weeks in the hospital. They'd patch him up, be like, we're draining fluid from his lungs. We're doing this. We're doing that. Then we're sending him to a nursing home. This probably happened like four or five times where he'd then go to a skilled 
nursing facility and be there for anywhere from two weeks to three months till he gained the ability to basically be sent home. He had something called alcoholic neuropathy that he couldn't feel his feet or his legs. If you drink for long enough, you can basically pickle your brain and your nervous system. So you, you lose feeling in your, your legs and your feet. I mean, it being Arizona, he was allowed to drive. I think he finally got a wheelchair like plaque or whatever for his um, truck towards the end of his life. But my, my sister and I were really upset. I mean, when, I can't even, I lost track of what incident it was where he was then put in a rehab center, but we were all, a rehab center being a place where he could, a, a skilled nursing facility learn how to walk again with the walker, hold himself up with the walker, reach for things. They would take him into these little like play kitchen areas and be like, open the cupboard, reach for the, you know, reach for the thing. And I'd sit and watch him. And uh, it was, it was, it was both heartbreaking and infuriating. It still makes me angry or I'm just like, oh, you know, like what a waste. And then he'd bounce back. And so, he had been hospitalized. He had to go in for sort of a routine thing for his lungs, and he ended up being admitted um, so that they could drain fluid from his lungs as they had before. And I was angry with him. You know, my last conversation that I had with him was so horrifying. Was that I was um, at a presentation at Vice uh, Magazine's headquarters where people. It was through something with Condé Nast where we went and saw a presentation from like a women's sort of like video, video website where they had this incredible woman come in and speak who's, you know, 98 and she's had this insane life and she's still like a park ranger part time. And I was talking to him, he called me and I answered and I went off into like a side room and was talking to him and just, and I started to cry. And he was like, don't cry, it's okay. Like, I'm gonna go home soon and it's not a big deal because he told me that they were gonna keep him in to have surgery. Um, oof. And, but also just being fucking pissed. I'm sitting here in a fucking Vice magazine <laughs> lobby, like, listening to this woman talk about her will to live. Um, and, and feeling angry with him. But also, you know, I think about all the times that my dad could have just thrown in the towel fully or really gone on that final bender. And I just don't think, I think that he wanted to hang on as long as he could. So yeah, I was sleeping and I had, I was with my, um, now ex-boyfriend who, um, you know, he was, we were sleeping and I got these, I had all these missed calls on my phone and from my, it's like the worst, it's like what you just, you know, my heart still pounds when somebody calls me or texts me in the middle of the night. Um, but I also, you know, post his death have anesthetized myself with an amazing cocktail of Prozac and Clonopin so I don't always <laughs> wake up when people call, um, which is amazing. And I sleep with the white noise machine on now. But but yeah, we, we got the call and I went home and my sister and I jumped on a flight. You know, we got the first flight out in New York. It was really sort of like the seamless thing. And 
when we got to the airport, my mom called us and she was like, he's actually awake and he's, he's intubated, but he's, he's, he's rolling his eyes. And I told him that the, that you guys were coming and he started rolling his eyes and, and motioning like, why, you know, what's the big deal? Um, so when my sister and I walked into the room, he started this up again where my, my mom woke him up and he just, it was like this frantic kind of motioning, like what's going on. Um, and also sort of like annoyance that we were there, like, <laughs> oh, God yeah. damn it, they called you. But also the thing that's painful for me still is like that. He, I like he there was some recognition on his part that he knew oh my my daughters are here this isn't good um so that was that was difficult and my, my sister and I were sort of just draped over him the entire time holding his hands and he sort of lost consciousness I think it took him about eight hours to die um or until we actually were like this is it we're gonna take him off life support um, there was about an eight hour window with him where we just held his hands and it was like, I could just, I think he, he had died, but you know, he was on so much morphine and they put him into like a, a twilight sleep yeah. is what they called it. And he would just sort of, it was like, he would have these sort of like aftershocks where he, his whole body would... Mm-hmm move or he would squeeze our hands really really tightly um and he seemed to sort of respond to things that we were saying too um or it seemed like he was he would squeeze us tightly when we said certain things to him which you know then one of his doctors who had terrible bedside manner was like I was like can he hear us and the guy was like can he hear you (laughs) hmm I'm like you know what fucker Fuck you. And then when he, and then when, when my dad, when we were like, we're going to take him off life support, that same doctor goes, my wife was a big fan of his. <laughs> I was like, geez, would you like an autograph? I can put a ballpoint pen in his hand and have him scribble for you. Um, so, yeah, so we took him off and we played him, you know, we played him music. My sister and I played him Graceland by Paul Simon. We played him some videos of my three-year-old nephew, um, laughing. Um, yeah, and my mom played him Dvorak, and it was really sweet. She played him the symphony for the new world, and it had been written, you know, he grew up in Iowa, and he was sort of an Iowa boy and proud of it, and Dvorak had written that symphony in Iowa, um, and so my mom played it for him, and, you know, she, watching her with him, they met each other when they were 19 years old. Like, they really did grow up together. So it was this very, this very tender moment of, like, seeing my mother and him who, you know, they they had their shit, but they also worked through it. And they were, they had two daughters who were technically adults, but they still, I think, they stayed in touch to talk about us and... And because I think that they both still loved each other, even though my mother, I, I don't mean that in a, like, she was in love with him, but I think they had a lot of love for each other up until he died. So yeah, seeing her in that moment, I think was, was really powerful for my sister and I, it was for me at least to 
really see her as like someone saying goodbye to someone who was a close friend of hers more than anything and that she'd known for yeah, my mom a huge amount of her life. My mom whisper, whispered into my dad's ear like thank you for our children. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That must be such a powerful thing. I mean, yeah, she said to him, Clay, it was like she was like talking to a, into a well kind of because you're yeah. like, you don't know if they're there. And she was like, Clay, we grew up together. And that was all she said to him. Did you have a funeral yet? Yeah, we had a funeral right afterwards while I was in Phoenix. And it was very sad but moving because... So many of his his readers came. Mm. A few people came up to me afterwards who had never met my dad, who only read his read his work. You're in such a zombie state. I don't think I slept. I like slept really at all. I, and I knew that my dad was. I knew he was dying for a few months before. I think we we sort of hoped he was going to make it through, but. I, I just, he wasn't doing well, and my sleep was getting worse and worse, and then he died, and then it really, I just stopped sleeping. Mm-hmm. And it, for anyone listening who, who's ever dealt with that, it's, it's horrible. It's the most destabilizing thing in the world to not sleep. Um, and it really makes you crazy. But I was in the stupor, and this man came up to me, and he grabbed me, and he said, I felt like I knew your dad. And I looked at him and I said, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? Like, it was one of those things. It took me like a week to be like, oh, and you responded, me too. Like, you know, like yeah. when you leave a party or you leave an interaction, you're like, oh, I can't believe I said that. Like, it took yeah. me a week yeah. to be like, that's what I said back to that person. I felt like I knew him. Me too. Thanks for listening. Tell Me About Your Father was created and produced by Erin Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson and Matthew Philp. For more information, visit tellmeaboutyourfather.com. Follow us on Twitter at TMAYF Podcast and on Instagram at tellmeaboutyourfather. Call our hotline at 888-318-DADS 24 hours a day and tell us about your father. That's 888-318-DADS. This podcast was inspired by Erin's memoir, Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Episodes were recorded by Rob Hahn at the Playground Studios in Brooklyn and edited by Chris Gellis and Emma Donoher. Our logo was designed by Cicero de Guzman and illustrated by Richard Verges. Special thanks to Mark Sussman, Jessica Suarez, Michael Vescio and Betsy Lerner. <laughs>